Welcome to Through the Trauma Podcast. My name is Amber Larkins, published photographer, storytelling expert, visual artist, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach. This podcast was born from one question. How do I get inspiring stories of triumph out to the people who need to hear them the most? Come with me, enter my world where lives are getting changed, heroes are getting developed, and greatness is being achieved. Welcome to Through the Trauma Podcast. I am Amber Larkins, your host, and today I have with me Mr. Steve Wilson. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm going to let him do his own introduction because he can do it so much better than I can. Steve, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Amber. Well, I'm 74 years old. I've been married for 50 years. I've got three daughters and two granddaughters. I retired from the custom clothing business in 2019, moved from my hometown of Delaware, Ohio to Scottsdale, Arizona. I was a real normal kid for the first few years of my life. And then when I was nine years old, everything changed. I went to the local movie theater, ran into a stranger, and he sexually abused me in the uh, theater restroom. That began for me a journey that started out as clinical depression. And then in the late 70s, since nothing worked to alleviate the tremendous problems it caused, I was re-diagnosed to bipolar two diagnosis. And from then on, I've worked with that for the next 50 years and have gotten a lot better. Um, the worst time I experienced was in college and right after college. I was a swimmer, always swam laps every day. And starting in about 1970 or 71, whenever I would jump in the pool to swim some laps, each stroke, I would say, in my mind, from somewhere, not me, said, kill yourself, kill yourself. And from there on, uh, it would just pop in my mind to commit suicide. But I didn't. My mother hooked me up with a psychiatrist. And I, I started on the road to recovery, but then I got in an altercation one night with my father, and I wound up in a... Uh, psychiatric hospital. That was in June of 1971. How old were you around that time? I was about 22. Mm -hmm. They say that the bipolar average age of starting with somebody is 25. So mine became hastened because of my trauma that I got early in life. Mm -hmm. Do you think that trauma brought it about? Well, I've I've asked that of every psychiatrist and psychologist I've gone to over the years, and they all say 
It might have, it might not have, they have no idea. Um, and especially back then in the 70s, I'd never even heard of bipolar. I didn't even know what it was. And if I didn't know what it was, nobody else did either, except for psychiatrists. So they really had no idea where it came from. The only thing they can say that they're pretty sure of, it's hereditary. Um, and in my own mind, the trauma that I experienced just made it come quicker. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a lot for anybody to have to handle. How long did it take them to discover from the time that you started having issues, the thoughts of suicidal ideations and things, did they discover that you had bipolar or did they diagnose you? Well, you got to realize that I didn't see anybody. The The trauma I experienced was in 1958. I didn't see any psychiatrist until 1970. So I went through those 12 years. My family didn't know. They didn't have a clue what I was going through because as most mentally impaired people do, we all fake it. Uh, especially back then, I was scared to tell anybody. Uh, boy, I, I remember thinking, boy, I, I'm going to get locked up if I, somebody finds out I'm screwed up. So I didn't tell anybody. And then I went to the my first psychiatrist in 1970 or 71. And I tried when they when they diagnosed me as clinically depressed, they started giving me medication that they had available. Now remember today we got a lot of medications. Back then you were lucky if you had five. So nothing worked. I got worse and worse and worse. And suicidal ideations got worse and worse. And so my psychiatrist told me he made a mistake. It's bipolar. Um, and the big fix it for that was lithium. And they gave it to me. And almost immediately, I began feeling better. I would say I got 50% better at that time to where I was able to manage no more suicidal ideations, uh, no more hospitalizations. Uh, I just almost got better overnight. And the thing that was still with me, I don't know if, if you've heard of ruminations, mm -hmm. but that's when your mind is just out of sight, uh, going round and round and round thinking about all the bad things you've done and what everybody thinks of you and you can't get it out of your mind. And I couldn't, couldn't get that to stop. Now, one thing you got to realize about bipolar is it comes and goes. Don't ever think that somebody who's bipolar is suffering so badly his whole life. That's just not true. It comes and goes, but each person has their own, um, cycle. Mine would be bad for a month or two, good for a couple, three or four months and whatever. And it just went like that. Mm -hmm. But when I was in bad shape, the, um, the ruminations just drove me crazy. I didn't get over that until they gave me Paxil in the year 2000. 
And Paxil was the last thing I needed in my cocktail. See, everybody has, almost everybody has to take more than one medication. I take four every day. And Paxil was the last one. It almost completely stopped the ruminations. And so since 2000, I've been in pretty good shape. Do you think that you're in a good place now and you have been for since then? Yes. Uh, there is no cure for bipolar. There is all kinds of treatment. Uh, everybody thinks that everybody gets cured, not cured, but helped by medication. The fact is only 50% of the people who are given medication get relief from it. The other 50% have to pursue um, other types of therapy. I was just listening to a podcast this morning, and now they are touting mindfulness, which takes into account breathing techniques and meditation and things like that. Mm -hmm. There are also... Um, there's, there's also cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. There's dialectical behavioral therapy. And there's intensive outpatient therapy. Now, what these all do is they attempt through therapy, um, not one-on-one not -on -one like you think sitting on a couch, but it's in a group and you try to change your way of thinking and handling things. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it really helps. There's other things you can do, EMDR, which is an eye movement therapy. Uh, ketamine is now doing very well. I have, I have two support groups that I facilitate and I've had three people on ketamine. I do two support groups each week. And the latest one is getting great success with it. Mm -hmm. Her medications helped her, but didn't get her over the top. And so she's getting ketamine treatments. It's an infusion process. And it's doing very well for her, but it only lasts about a month and then she has to do it again. Um, for other people, it sounds like when I'm hearing myself talk that people are going out and getting all of these treatments and doing very well. That is not the fact. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple things keep people from getting relief. And one of them is, first of all, they are afraid to go to a therapist. They're afraid to take medication, so they don't do anything. And because of that, they never get any notice of these different programs that can help them. Then the next group of people go to therapists. They get medication. When the medication only works or doesn't work in the first month, they throw it away, say, this is not for me, and they're back down the toilet again right after that. And then there are the people who just don't think anything can help them. And they go through life every day suffering when there's a lot of things out there that could make their lives a lot better, mm -hmm. but they just don't hunt for them. And finally, there are the expense 
insurance has made it very tough for the mental health industry. They have imposed strict limitations on how much they pay, forcing many of the therapists to not take insurance or to, and when they don't take insurance, they have to charge a higher premium than a lot of people can pay. And so a lot of people just don't get help. And then there are those who are on disability for some reason. They don't make enough money. Uh, they're SMI, which means severely mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And they're only relief because they can't afford the therapy. They can't afford the medication, but they have clinics for them. But the clinics are so overwhelmed that to tell you what it was for me when I was in the hospital the, the first time I was seeing a therapist three times a week mm -hmm. and I needed it. Well, if you go into one of these clinics, you might get in to see them for the first time fairly quickly, in a couple of weeks. Now, if you're in distress and you need to see somebody on a continual basis, they may go, well, I'll see you in a month or two or three. So people just, they fall through the cracks. And then because of the insurance companies again, the new medications are so damn expensive that the government won't fund them. And so people have to take the old ones that are not nearly as good as the new ones. It is a horrible system. Ours out here is called access, and it's the same way all over the country. It's just That's unfortunate because I think that it's not only, I mean, mental health, yeah, I think it's horrible. And the more that we learn about mental health, the more that, you know, it's, yes, there's people hurting. But it's unfortunate because I think that there's a lot of this in the medical industry just in general, um, you know, where it's like people are not getting diagnosed correctly. There's a culture, like a taboo of like, you know, where people don't want to admit that they're sick, yeah. um, especially when it comes to mental health, there's a stigma attached to it. And it's so sad. And that's one of the things that like, I, my heart is to really normalize talking about these things that it's very nor we all struggle with something. So if it's not mental health, it may be physical health, it may be financial health, it may be something. But every person has their set of problems. But why mental health has to be a taboo subject or something that we don't speak on is beyond me. I don't I don't understand that. Well, if you were here in the 50s and 60s, it was a hell of a lot more than taboo. It was, oh, we better throw him up, lock him up and throw away the key. It was so bad. That's one of the reasons I never told anybody for 30 years. I was afraid of what they'd do to me. And that was when I was just a kid. Yeah. So it has, it's gotten better, mm -hmm. but not a lot. So one of the things that I do to try to help people get through this is that I facilitate those two, two groups in the Phoenix area. And the sad thing is I can handle about 15 people in each group. 
And I probably get calls from additional five or six others to come every group. Sometimes I've tried to do as many as 25, but 15 is about as much as I can do. Well, the sure fact is there's about hundreds and hundreds of people who need these groups. And the groups are so good because they let you know that you're not alone, that there is help, that other people are dealing with it. Sadly, one of the main reasons I've found through all the people I've seen, I've seen well over a thousand, I don't know how many, is that many of the reasons these people are deeply disturbed is because they were abused or beaten or sexually abused or uh, mentally abused when they were children or in their late teens or in their early 20s. And to tell you one case that is the one I use whenever I talk about it is there was a family I know in, back in Ohio and um, whenever the son would do something wrong, the father would take him in time to a post in the basement and burn him with cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So these are things I run into all the time. People are sadistic and they seem to take it out on their own family members as much as they do anybody else. So it's really sad. These people who are in my groups, they all go, not all of them, half of them go to therapy, half of them take medication, and the others are not doing anything, but they're all in the same boat. They're not getting the care that they need. Mm -hmm. uh, they just, they're just not. And therefore, when they come to my groups, it's the first time they get to speak about anything mm -hmm. and open up to people who really know what they're, what they're going through. Now we run into another problem. Many of the people who start in a group come the first time or second time, never come back. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, they're so scared of releasing the trauma in front of people that they just don't come back. Uh, they There's a lot of triggering that goes on. Um, which means that somebody will say something or do something that gets in somebody's head and they think, oh my God, it's going to start again. I'm going to go through this again. So I'm getting out of here. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons. Now my group, I do not charge. So it's not a money thing. It stops people coming from my group. Uh, Long-term people, most groups have a steady group of people who come every week and then you add new people all the time. I've had people who've been there for, for years who get triggered by something somebody says uh, and they never come back. It only takes one triggering to stop somebody from getting help. And that's sad. So are, um, these, are these like support groups that you, that you run? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, they are every Tuesday and Thursday night. They start at seven and they go till nine. Uh, they're online. They used to be in person, but when COVID hit, we changed all that. In fact, they are better online because more people can join. 
so it's it's much better. I, I want you to tell me a little bit about like you have your core group of people there in that group that will share and they've struggled through mental health. Can you talk a little bit like for the listeners when family members are what where does that leave family members? Does that leave the the people sometimes disengaged from family? Um, do they have family that's kind of there to support them and take care of them? Or what does that look like in most situations? Well, I would really say it's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. I had no family support. But forgiving them because they didn't know what the hell to do in the 50s and 60s. Different ballgame. Um, for a lot of my people, there's no family support because the family is what is abusing them. And then there's a lot of people who, because of the stigma, go, I don't want anybody to know that my kid's having problems, so I'm going to turn my back on it. Um, But that's not everybody. A lot of people try to help as best they can. But I'm telling you, these disorders are so bad for the person going through them that if I sat here and told you what it was like when I was suicidal and I described the feelings in your brain, you couldn't manifest what I was talking about. You could hear the words, I'm at the bottom of the barrel. You don't know what bottom of the barrel is until you go through it. Mm -hmm. Um, About four years ago, a good friend of mine who was the pillar of our community, everybody thought he was the most wonderful person in the world. He he was very wealthy. He gave a lot to charity when I supported his church and everything. One day they found him hanging from a pillar in his basement. Now, the reaction was from his friends and people in the in the community. How could he do this? Why did he do this to me? How could he make his parents feel so bad? And um, I was at a uh, memorial for this guy, and I got so sick and tired of what people were saying, you know, saying things like, oh, he didn't have the right to do this and all that. And I stood up and I said, you people have no idea. I can tell you I've been at the bottom of that barrel. And he was thinking that it was best for everyone if he was gone, and it was his only way out. Mm-hmm. So people just don't understand how bad it is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who have it had it a lot worse than I did. Because if you throw on that schizophrenia, which some people have a, a whole bunch of things, it's horrible. I talk a lot on on this podcast about mindset and we have the ability to choose. And I I am a little bit familiar with mental health because it does run in my in my children's father's family. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I can, I've not personally dealt with mental health other than depression, which I think as humans, sometimes a lot of people have dealt with depression at some point in their life. Um, but I can only attest to what you're describing is someone who has, they don't have the ability to to make the choice to switch their mindset. 
they feel these thoughts and it's like a prison that they can't get out of. Is that how you would describe it? Absolutely. And I would say that um, it's a shame that medication doesn't help everybody. And a lot of these uh, techniques I've described earlier help some and don't help a lot of other people. Uh, so many sufferers have to rely on tools that we were all taught uh, as we were beginning in the throes of uh, depression. Things like uh, breathing techniques and tapping and spinners. You take a, people walk around with a little spinner and they go like this. It's to control their anxiety. But a lot of them don't, just don't get a lot of help. And you talk about depression. Well, some people say, well, how can you be that bad? I've been depressed and I didn't get like you. Well, you didn't have clinical depression. You didn't have, you had the blues for a couple of days. You didn't have what other people are suffering through. So there's a big distinction between I'm down for a couple of days and I'm down for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Well, and sometimes like people like myself, I can, I can speak from my own experience. When I went through depression, there was a lot of shame surrounded but it was because of actions I had made, decisions I had made and actions I had taken that had took me into a dark path. Mm -hmm. And I was in a place of like self-inflicted, I don't want to say self-inflicted depression, but kind of, I mean, I had made bad choices and I had led down a road to where the shame and the, I couldn't handle the shame anymore. But when my experience with people with mental health or people I've spoke to about mental health, it seems to me like that's not, their depression is out of nowhere. It comes from, it's not self-inflicted. It's not decisions that they've made. It's just, it's out of nowhere. Well, are you familiar with John Fetterman, the Senator from Pennsylvania? Mm. He no. just, just got elected this last cycle. And he had a stroke and just before the, the election. And his stroke caused him to go into a deep, deep depression that lasted months. And he is now dealing with it and getting along well. But there's a, a case of some external activity, just like what you're talking about, making mistakes, causes him to go into a deep depression. So it can be anything, just to be more direct, it is not just something that keeps you down for a couple of days. It can keep you down for months, many, many weeks beyond that, and years. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what true depression is. Now, bipolar has two different types. The one I have is bipolar two, which is deep, deep depression followed in your cycle, my cycle by a hypomania, which is a mania that when you're depressed, you're here, true mania is up here and hypomania is in the middle somewhere. Bipolar one is depression 
and then a complete destructive mania that will come after it that will last weeks, months, however long you think you're the greatest person in the world. You spend all your money, you ruin your life, you get rid of your family, you do everything, and then you crash and go into depression. When you get out of the depression, you look around and you're in debt. You can't do anything. Your family's gone. You've ruined your whole life. Luckily for me, I never experienced that. But I have people in my groups who have, and you can tell the minute you talk to them, they're going into a manic cycle. Their, their voice gets high and pitched. They start speaking so fast you can hardly keep up with them. They're jerking around. They're in for a bad time. And they won't listen to anybody. They're just in their own little world, and it's really sad. So I don't want to leave this open-ended to where it's almost feels hopeless. What in, in your advice, what do you have for someone that maybe knows someone that is struggling with those things? How can they be supportive? Well, three years ago, I went to a, a trauma therapist because there were some certain, certain things in my life that I had to close. I had to get them over with in my mind. So the trauma therapist took me back to when I was six years old, and we wrote down over months my life and started with just before the sexual abuse, went through everything. And when we were all done, there was so much there that she says, you know, you, you could do the mental world a big... Uh, positive something by writing about this because I was able to go from the lowest low 50% 60% better all the way through I am one of those who did everything the right way I took my medication when I was supposed to I went to therapy I did exercise I did all the things and if people would do the things that they're supposed to do, they've got a chance of getting better. What I've done recently is to write that book. And it is a chronological uh, writing of my life through. And it takes through the progression of how one can survive this, knowing that it is a long time journey and there is no cure. You're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, I'm fixed. But it is a long time journey. And that's what we talk about in my groups. And the book I've written is called Teetering on a Tightrope, My Bipolar Journey. And it's available at Amazon. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, there is hope there for everybody. I mean, everybody. That they can get they can get better and live a normal normal is not the right word to use because there is no normal life but they can live a lot better life if they just apply themselves if they turn their backs on getting better they won't get better how do you think bipolar relates to some of the other mental disorders as far as you know i know there's some differences clinical differences between bipolar and um you know, schizophrenia, borderline personality, 
um, some of the di different things. And I know the medication is different for some of them, although some of them are similar, correct? Yes. Um, well, just look at it this way. When I was put on the depression meds, they didn't work at all. But when I was put on the bipolar meds, changed my life. Uh, same thing. Um, we have people in the group who are schizophrenia, borderline, and they take different medications than for other treatments, but then they take some that are the same. Because as I said, it's not a one pill fix, it's a cocktail. And where I take four medications, some people take six, eight, and 10. Man, it's just, it's so, it's so sad to think about it. And I tell you, like, you, I have to think, and I've often thought this, you know, around people who struggle with some of these things, I've often tried to think, I, I am fascinated with the mind and I've always been like, I'm fascinated with the way that the mind works and how powerful it is and how we can, you know, remember things or strengthen it. It's like a muscle. But then also when you're talking about a, a mental health disorder or a, or a sickness, and I hate to call it a sickness because it's not really what it is, but it's, it's something that's going on inside of our head. And you have to think for your brain is what's running everything. So when something is not, those synapses are not firing correctly or something's not going on exactly right in the brain that would, that has to be a very scary thing. And for me, like I, I'm an empath anyway, like I can feel other people's emotions, but for me to even think about someone going through that, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Unimaginable to me. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what the brain protects you from what I went through. It will not allow you to see how bad it is. It's just like if uh, you tell me that you had a friend who was bl blown up in the war and you saw it, I couldn't picture what you saw. Mm -hmm. I would say, oh, that's too bad. He blew up in the war. But you would have to struggle with that forever, that image of him being blown up. Same, same thing with the mind. I was told from the onset that it was a chemical imbalance, and that is a fact. But unlike the medical field, where most of the time you know the cure for something, like if you had a heart attack, they know how to fix it most of the time. The psychological field is so, it's guessing what's going to, it's like, why do they have to to find to try five and six pills to find one that works. Um, it's a guessing game. And that's the way it's always been. And hopefully it isn't that way forever. They're trying things like mindfulness that we talked about a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. um, in my mind, that can help, but it can't cure anything. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and it also takes like a hypervigilant spirit to do that too like it takes someone being intentional constantly in doing these things so if you're going to be mindful i mean i i have a hard time meditating myself so like just thinking about myself having to go and 
be more mindful and take on these therapies that take a lot of time. Because I know some of those therapies you mentioned are, uh, they're also used for trauma therapy. Yeah. The, the EMDR and the tapping. And I, I was reading some about this and how it helps with trauma as well. The brain is such a complex thing. And it's like, if we're not being, if there, if someone is diagnosed with something like this and they're not being hypervigilant or super intentional about doing these things, it's very easy to fall off. And when we're humans, it's kind of, it's kind of like trying to lose weight. Right. You work on a lot for a month, you lose three pounds and you go, screw it, I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, it's just the way humans are. If it, if they want a quick fix, mm -hmm. uh, we're all, it took me 30 years to get to where I'm really good again. But uh, people just aren't, for the majority, aren't going to give it that much of a go. Yeah. So that's, that's sad. That's why... I think in my mind that the medication will evolve itself into getting more specific at handling it. You don't have to take six and eight pills every day and, and the treatments will get a lot better. Uh, but if you leave it up to people to do it on their own, they're not going to do it. Yeah. Sad, but true. So the, the ending here is you're doing amazing things. Your triumph story is that you are doing these groups. You've written this book. You're talking to people who are struggling and you know what they've been through. So it's a lot different when someone says, you know, they, they're they empathetic versus someone that's actually walked that path and you've walked that path and you've been through a lot. So for you to take and harness all those negative things that has happened and the, the negative things that you've walked through and be able to help impact others, that's very powerful. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. I'm, I tell you how some people react. Uh, well, let's just get specific here. I, I wrote this book and a lot of it is about my relationship with my father and and it wasn't good let's just put it that way but i gave all the reasons why and what he did and in my mind it was very plain well we were a fairly well-to-do family in ohio and we had a clothing store that was just about the biggest store in town and and we did very well and my father had a lot of friends, but he wasn't a good father. There were three kids. He wasn't good to any of us. He ignored us most of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, when I wrote this book, and a lot of my friends picked it up and, and read it, from the set of friends who I had previously that were not my good friends now, but I moved on to others. When I was in the 20s, I had these friends in 30s. Uh, they got to know my parents really well. Their reaction to my book was, how in the hell can you say that about your father? He was a wonderful man. How can you put him down? And I, my only response is, that's how I saw it. And look at what he did to me. And didn't change their minds at all. So 
people are going to react to what my book is about, what other people have written a lot of other books on bipolar. But certain people just aren't going to aren't going to get it, and they don't want to get it. So it's that stigma thing again. Well, and you just I think people have to know that it's so hard to put judgment on someone else's life and how what they do and how they live their life when you don't know you haven't walked in their shoes and uh, I seen this early on and you know I'm I'm a Christian I I believe in God but I never am like condemn people because I have not walked in their shoes I don't know what they've gone through and um and I've seen a lot of I've been friends with people. I've had acquaintances. I've seen a lot of trauma. I've noticed it throughout my life, not even recently from starting the podcast and and doing the things with the with my transformation through trauma project. But way before that, I and I think that comes with being an empath. I just I, I see people's emotions and I try to understand it. I'm fascinated with trying to understand how to help them get better. And this is one thing that I don't have the answers to. I really don't know how to, I just don't know how to make it better for people. Um, and it's very enlightening talking to someone like you who is kind of shedding light onto it. But I do believe, I'll just say this, like I think that the main thing is we have to be so careful not to condemn people because we don't know. We don't know what they've seen, just like the war uh, veteran that you were talking about that had you know, seeing this horrible thing. I did interview a, um, a, she's become a friend of mine now, but uh, we did a transformation through trauma's photo session and Mm -hmm. she described some of the horrible things she saw. And I just, I can't even, I can't wrap my mind around that or even fathom it. So we just never know. We never know what other people are going through and we need to be sensitive to those things as just as human beings. The real thing it gets down to, it's up to the individual to do his or her very best to get back to a constructive, happy life. You can throw all the therapy you want at them and have the greatest psychiatrists and psychologists And for every one of those who gets a lot of help and moves on, there are so many who just give up and they won't listen. Many of them are their own worst enemy. Uh, And don't forget one thing. Some of these people are kind of like what we remember seeing on TV of being locked up. There are many people who can't get help, period. And we totally flush those out of our minds. I've known people who've, back in the 70s, one of my family's friends had a, a child. I, I don't remember his name now, but he came out uh, very sullen, very depressed, very whatever. I don't know what he had. They sent him off to a, an asylum and he never came out. And that still happens today, but not as as badly. 
But we forget about all these people who have no lives at all. It's it's really sad. Yeah, it breaks my heart. It really does. It breaks my heart to think about that because it you know this is the thing, and this is the thing we have to remember. That could be us. That could have yes. been us. You know, it could have been me. It could have been you. It could have been. Uh, it could be our children. I mean, you know, you never know. Like you said, with with bipolar and a lot of mental health, um, these things don't even like develop into your life until you're in your twenties. So you never know. Um, you know, so what do we do? Try to be the very best people we, we can and, uh, be empathetic and sympathetic to those that are struggling and hurting, but it's just really sad to hear those stories. Um, and then just to think about the medical system that has kind of failed. Um, although I do believe they they are making progress, like you said, and they're trying to do the best, but it is easy for these things to fall through the cracks and it's not acceptable. But well, as you could tell, I'm very much against the drug companies. The they're just playing with people's lives and I don't respect them at all. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that. The problem is I went, I just happened to do a podcast the other day and the guy was from uh, England and we got talking after the podcast about their national health insurance. We always think, oh, we're going to, we want to have everybody covered. He says, it's a nightmare. The wait is so long to get any procedures that in fact, it might not even be as good as ours. So unless you're rich, it's all it boils down to if you're rich. So I don't know what the solution is. There is none for right now, but we're working on it. Yeah. Well, and we can't, you know, it's impossible to change the world, but sometimes just changing our own, what, what can we do in our immediate sphere is what's important. And we just try to do the very best we can to make that part of a better place in the world, you know? Um, so tell me, Steve, like, before we wrap up here, is there anything else like resources, anything else that I know you would probably recommend people come to your group and we can put all that information in the show notes, but, um, is there, besides reading your book, connecting with you, um, is there any other resources or anything that you would send people to? Yeah, there's plenty of them, and I can't remember them all today, but there are national organ organizations such as NAMI, N-A-M-I, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. There's Mental Health America. The simplest thing for people to do is just Google uh, mental health resources or some, put in something like that, and they'll all pop up. Now, what you can ask them is, how do I find support groups? Put in your state, your city, and NAMI can get you the information. There's a depression, bipolar, some DBSA, and they do a lot of support groups. Um, many of them are online, and you just start going to them and see which one works for you, and That'll be the way to go. The reason I wrote my book, I'm not going to make a dime off of it. 
But the reason I wrote it is to give people perspective of what a person's life can be like dealing with mental illness. And to show you people who don't, one, it can show people are going through it that, yeah, other people are suffering. So that makes it easier for me. But also most people out there don't believe how bad it can get. Mm -hmm. That's another reason I wrote it. There are support groups in every state, in every major city, and even some small cities that have county mental health departments, whatever. So all, today it's easy. You just Google it and you can come up with all the answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then your search is going to begin to see what works best for you. It's like finding a therapist. Um, you may go, may go through two or three and say, I'm not connecting with these guys. They don't like me or they talk too much or whatever. And you just have to keep searching for them and you'll find the right one for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What other takeaways do you have or other advice that you would give listeners or to someone that um, maybe is in the middle of this and maybe even struggling with uh, suicidal ideations? Do you have any advice? Well, it's the same as what we've been talking about. One, get help. Do what they tell you to do. If you don't like what they're doing for you, be your best advocate and speak up so you can get the care that you need. Don't ever give up. And you can get through this. You've got to have a good support system, which can be your friends, your family, your psychiatrist, your therapist, all of them work well with you. And make sure that you let your support system know what you're going through and how you don't want any advice. You don't want anybody to tell you, we'll go take a walk or go bowling or something else. You just want to be puddled, coddled, and loved. Mm -hmm. And that will help more than anything else. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And, you know, I just encourage anybody that is listening that if you have, if you're struggling through these things, like I am here for you as well. Like you can reach out to me. I will do whatever I can to get whatever resources that you need for you um, because it's heartbreaking. And I don't want people to go through things alone and to think they are alone in, in things like this. So um, Steve, you've been awesome. You Thank you. So much information. And um, I just, like I said before, I appreciate all the work that you're doing because I know that you're making an impact. It's one step forward, two steps back. It's a, it's a long journey. Um, I have reached out. This is, this is what really disappoints me. There are many people who are famous who have gone through the similar situations. I've reached out to several of them, never hear back, uh, can't get through to them. So it's very tough to get the word out, but we'll, we'll keep trying. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's all we can do. That's all we can do and make it more normal where people can talk about it. And it's not seen as negative. It's just like any other 
as humans, we have problems, we have issues that we struggle through and deal with. And, you know, I think let's normalize those things because suffering alone is so hard. And I just don't want people to have to do that. That's right. And one other thing I have found is that teenagers and young people are really getting bad these days. There's so much stress on them, just beating them up. And the suicide rates are sky high, um, starting younger and younger all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and on top of that, which we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole, or this is like a whole nother podcast, but, um, you know, there's things in the food, there is things in the, in the drugs, the medications, um, you know, and I, I'm not anti-medication. I believe there's time and a place for medication. I don't like that doctors jump to medications right away without trying some holistic things. But um, I do believe that, you know, as we continue to see our food, you know, with GMOs, we continue to see our, um, you know, the pesticides and things that they're putting on the food, the different ways that they're, you know, slaughtering the uh, the meat and, you know, all these different things. You can go down a whole rabbit hole with that, but there's a lot there. And there's so many toxins that we're putting inside of our body that if we have these predispositions to these types of sicknesses, whether it be cancer or, you know, mental health, or um, you see more and more kids, you know, with um, ADD and whatever, whatever that we have these days that are kind of coming out. It's like, I'm not saying that it is caused from that, but I'm not saying it's not either. It definitely should make people raise eyebrows and say, this is, seems like it, this is a growing epidemic in our country. And where's that coming from? But the thing is 20%, if you want to put a figure on 20% of the people in the United States and around the world have mental problems, 20%. And how many millions is that? And it's growing all the time because of the stresses, the food, the air, the water, everything you're talking about. And I don't know how to improve those things. And one of the reasons is the people who are in charge don't want to because it affects their bank account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's a very, very corrupt system. Yeah. But again, that goes down a whole nother, maybe we'll do a podcast <laughs> on that. Because <laughs> that, that's, that's a whole nother thing. And, you know, people have a lot of different views on that stuff. But um, I think more and more people are starting to see the issues with these things. Yeah. Um, so we just do the best we can, help the people that we can, and go from there. That's, that's all I know to do. <laughs> that yeah. is true well steve thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for sharing and again thank you for what you're doing it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you very much amber i've enjoyed it too keep doing what you're doing to get the word out on mental illness thank you for listening to through the trauma podcast if you have found value in this episode or believe in the mission behind what we are doing please subscribe so that you never miss any future episodes. 
Also, be sure to check out our Transformation Project at transformationthroughtraumaproject.com, where we help inspirational stories get heard on a larger scale through multiple platforms. If you know someone who can benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Until next time.